to episode 18 of the Oxfordshire Teacher Training Podcast, and I'm absolutely delighted to be sitting down this afternoon with Afwa Hirsch. Afwa is a journalist, a broadcaster, and she's a Guardian columnist. Um, she's also a professor of journalism at USC, and uh, many of you will have seen uh, programmes that she's done recently on BBC, including Enslaved and also African Renaissance, When Art Meets Power. And I'm sure that many of you will have also come across Afwa on current affairs programmes, um, regular on Question Time and other programmes as well. Um, you may also have come across Afwa uh, with a remarkable book, British, on race, identity and belonging. And uh, this afternoon, we're going to be having uh, a think about identity. We're going to be having a little think about uh, what what it means um, in terms of thinking about uh, being British um, with the ish in brackets. Um, and thinking a bit about curriculum as well. So, Afwa, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for asking me to come on. It's a great pleasure. It's a great pleasure. So if you haven't read British, um, I thoroughly recommend you do. It's a really, really important book, I think. Um, it's uh, It focuses on, on race and identity and belonging. And uh, fairly early on in the book, there's a line that, that really resonated with me um, when you said, uh, when I first started thinking about identity, which is when I first started thinking, and that in itself I thought was interesting. But you then started to say that um, that you felt thinking about identity was not the kind of thing that you would talk about in school. Um, so let's let's perhaps just start by by thinking first of all about maybe, maybe just give us a little bit of a background about what, what school was like for you, but then also thinking about um, whether you think that it is the case now that um, people aren't necessarily thinking about their identity and talking about it in school. Well, I've really come to realise that the reason that I was so aware, acutely aware of my identity and questions about my heritage and race from an early age was really because I was such a visible other. I was often the only person of colour in my environment, the only person of African heritage. And I was very conscious of my name being a name that people found difficult to pronounce, my hair being something that attracted attention and curiosity. And my mother, I remember little children running up to her and touching her face with their hands to see if the colour came off and all of this it was in a way innocent curiosity and I suppose there's the spectrum from kind of curiosity to ignorance and it was often well-intentioned or not in any way intended to be malicious but my first experience of it was really just this profound reminder that there was something different about us and that that difference had content I suppose that there was uh, a history to it and there were certain preconceived ideas that went along with it and I didn't have a language at all to describe that. I couldn't have talked about being racialized or feeling othered or having a sense that my visible difference marked me out for certain kinds of questions or behavior. But I certainly felt it on an emotional level and perceived it in my environment. And I think that only became magnified as I grew up. And, and one thing that I've found in my kind of quest to understand journalistically, academically and personally these experiences of identity, race and belonging is that if you grow up as part of the majority, and it doesn't matter what that majority is, my mother, a black woman who grew up in her early years in Ghana, was totally unaware of her race because it was completely normal to be black. There wasn't even a word for it in her language. So it's not necessarily something unique about Europe or white societies, but wherever you are, if you are 
visibly part of the majority, then you have, in, in a way, the luxury of not really having to think about your identity. And if you are a visible minority, I think it's almost unavoidable that you feel different. And in the, the unique case of being Black in a European country, and especially in Britain, there is a very specific baggage to the ways in which people perceive Blackness. And so that's something that I was also experiencing without being able to understand. That it wasn't just curiosity, there was that, but there were also these prejudices and these ideas about what blackness meant, that blackness was undesirable, blackness was not aspirational, and that the best thing that could happen to me was that I would somehow be allowed to assimilate into whiteness. And that's something that people communicated to me from quite an early part of my life, saying, you know, don't worry, Af, we we don't really see you as black, you're fine. Almost trying to offer me a way out of my heritage and my identity. And the people saying that to me were my peers, also children growing up in the society. And I don't think they either had the tools to understand that they had been conditioned to have such negative ideas about blackness that the best option they felt they could offer me was to leave it altogether. So these were the things that shaped my world growing up. And as well as not having a language or the knowledge to understand where it was coming from, I also didn't have the space to express it. And that's something I felt very strongly that in spite of these experiences, it felt very taboo to talk about them. People would tell me that they didn't see race. And what I understood by that was that they didn't want to know what the experiences of someone being racialized was. They preferred to believe that uh, it was something in the past that didn't need to be discussed. So it was a real dichotomy and a real paradox. On the one hand, I experienced being racialized. But on the other hand, I was almost being gaslit in the sense of having an experience of being racialized was not something that was acceptable to talk about in a world in which people preferred, having not experienced racism themselves, people preferred to believe that it had gone away. And in a way, it was actually only when I wrote my book that I really found the courage and I think the sense of intellectual integrity in the subject matter to feel able to put this out there and have these conversations. Because even in my personal life with my family members and close friends, some of them I'd never talked about this before because it felt like such a difficult subject to broach and also one with which people often react with defensiveness or hostility. And I think that these are all the reasons why we're really we've really not progressed in the way that we should in this society, in our narrative, in our discourse, and even our vocabulary around talking about these issues. We've really chosen to avoid doing it. And that's something I felt really strongly had to change. It, certainly with, within Oxfordshire, uh, lots of the people who uh, are working and training with us at the moment in Oxfordshire schools will, will find that, um, that, there is, that classes are predominantly white, um, not always the case, but but certainly if we're thinking, you know, out, outside of Oxford City, for example, um, that that is going to be the case. And so, um, what you were talking about um, in terms of your your own experiences um, may well be ones that that, that they're seeing um, in schools schools right now. So one of the things that um, certainly um, people who are training with us, uh, they're thinking about kind of developing their own knowledge and their own skills and their own behaviours. Um, one of the things that we often find is that they don't actually know what it is they don't know yet. And um, I, know, I know in British, for example, you talk about that um, in terms of your own studies. And um, and I think back to my own um, childhood when I went to school. So I, I went to school in Bristol and uh, uh, my, my school was, was founded by Edward Colston, 
And um, one would like to think that um, a significant part of my education there would, would, would be about um, the fact that uh, this, this, this is the man who was very deeply involved in uh, the, the creation of Bristol, but only really through um, the work that was going on with slavery. And, um, you know, I've certainly, if you haven't yet seen um, Enslaved, I know you, you, you touch on that in um, one of the episodes in, in there as well. Um, but there's this incredible tension um, for me that didn't happen until long after I'd left school about, well, why didn't I learn about this? And I, I I feel that, and I think this is an inevitable experience of anyone who embarks on a journey of self-education, because this still really is not ma- a mainstream part of our curricula in any uh, academic level of learning in the UK. But you start to acquire this knowledge, and then you have this real sense of almost having been cheated or not having been equipped by your education to understand things that are actually quite existential to your own life. So in my case, I did not know about the British Empire so I wasn't able to put in a context the place that my family come from um and ironically and I write about this in my book because of the two sides of my heritage I knew about my my grandfather's Jewish German origins I knew about the reasons in which German Jews came to Britain other countries fleeing the Nazis and I could understand the background to their experience and the political context but when it came to my Ghanaian family's experience and ironically this was a family that had a deep centuries-long history of contact with Britain and being involved in Britishness in a way but their contribution to Britain was totally invisible and had been completely erased from everything I learned so when you're growing up in Britain as part of the story of how Britain built itself through these imperial histories you're made to feel like an imposter and an outsider in this country as if there's no context for you you're just here and and worse than that, actually, there are these kind of other narratives that, you know, immigrants are people who arrived quite recently to cream off the benefit system or the NHS. And that's something that the press, certainly in my lifetime, has perpetuated as a very clear idea that these are kind of undeserving people who came here trying to cheat the indigenous. And so it, it, it couldn't be more important that it actually affects your sense of self and your relationship with your country, your sense of having the right to take up space and forge your own identity here and in my case those were things that I felt very insecure and uh, unentitled to do and it's been actually fascinating to see the reaction to my book and that there are people who still perpetuate that narrative so something that still gets said to me in public spaces by famous journalists and broadcasters is if you don't like it here why don't you leave and I think that really portrays that that is still a deeply embedded belief that people still think if you look like me no matter whether you were born here no matter how many generations of your family were fundamentally involved in contributing to or building Britain your presence here is still conditional you don't really belong you're not really uh, entitled to the same rights and unconditional Britishness as other people and I think that everybody who has that belief is a product of what they've been taught and they have been not they have not been taught that there is a history and a background and a Britishness to the stories of empire they've been taught that Britishness is this very narrow construct and it is a construct it was invented during the Victorian era this idea of the white indigenous Anglo-Saxon race destined to spread out and rule the world and civilize savages everywhere this is a narrative that was very deliberately created in fairly recent history, but has never been challenged. And there's no point, there's no moment you can point to in our political discourse or in our education system, in our media, where 
that was challenged where its origins were understood and unpicked and it was deliberately corrected with a more honest understanding of what Britain is and its relationship to the world. And so until that happens, those narratives will persist. And in a way, my reaction to people who say these things to me is not really one of blame. It's more one of pity that they have not been equipped to understand their own country. And also one of gratitude that I, having had all these identity struggles growing up, which really created a huge emotional challenge for me at the time, have blessed me with this quest of self-education which I feel has actually equipped me better than other people to understand this country and that's why I wrote my book because I wanted to share that privilege and I wanted to to spark that intellectual curiosity in others to go on that journey themselves. Let's have a little think then about um, about the, let's think about the curriculum then in schools at the moment and and with obviously the the audience for this podcast is, is predominantly people who are um, thinking about training uh, to become teachers or those who are training to become teachers or those who are supporting those for, as mentors um, at the moment. So if we think about the, the curriculum in, in schools at the moment, do you, do you think that it is fit for purpose at the moment? I don't think it's fit for purpose. And that's not just as regards race and histories of empire. I think, I believe very strongly that education is rooted in a cultural context. And if you look at contemporary uh, comparative education systems, education systems that work, that produce good outcomes, are ones that that very much are designed to fit the cultural needs and identities of their constituents. And if you look at British education, so much of our education system is rooted in a time when it was intended to equip mainly white boys to understand their world in this imperial system and then go and have factory jobs, essentially. And so nothing about that is useful for this economy, this society. Um, in fact, I was writing my Guardian column recently about the free school meals debate. And, you know, um, Marcus Rushford, the footballer, has really pioneered this campaign to make sure that children from low-income backgrounds are still able to get school meals when they need them. And, you know, when I was researching the history of preschool meals, I discovered that it was really rooted in this imperial anxiety that in the early 20th century, there was all this concern following the Boer War in South Africa that was a disastrous campaign for the British in South Africa, that working class British men were becoming uh, physically inferior, that they weren't able to win these imperial wars that were so crucial for Britain. And there was all of this angst and soul searching about why their masculinity was failing, were they not properly, um, were they not being given the right physical education and were they malnourished and that they were these kind of weak specimens. This was the narrative that took hold. And the, the program of free school meals was designed to correct that. It was based on the idea that we need our white men to go and become armies and our imperial soldiers and our imperial army so that they can keep Britain in its rightful place as civilizer and conqueror. And I just thought that was fascinating because it's just one example of how our education system is rooted in these specific ideas about what Britishness is and what we should be equipping young people to be able to do. And again, I don't feel that that's ever been radically challenged, even though our world is so unrecognisable now from the one it was then. And certainly our education system was never designed to equip a young mixed race woman who's proud of her African heritage, for example, to take my case, to navigate her identity and also locate herself in Britishness and envision 
a future digital globalized economy in which she can thrive alongside others like her. So just taking my example, I, I don't, I think you, anyone would struggle to point to anything about my education that where someone said, this is the person we're trying to educate. Now, now how can we equip this young person to go out and fulfill this potential? And I think if you were to start from a blank slate now, based on who we need to educate and what we want to enable them to become, it would look very different to how it looks now. And I think that's a really useful thought exercise sometimes to conduct when we think about education. Fantastic. That's really interesting and um, quite thought-provoking as well for, for lots of people who are training with us at the moment to, to, to really quest, question, you know, not just little aspects of, but fundamental mm-hmm. aspects of the way in which our, our, our curriculum is, is built up. So um, we're recording this uh, towards the end of November. Um, last last month, um, if if you if you follow certain things, was described as Black History Month. Um, I, I wonder what your views are on on the fact that we've got October described as Black History Month. Well, I was joking with an American friend that um, Black History Month is always the shortest month of the year. So in the US, Black History Month is February, which is literally the shortest month of the year. (laughs) And in Britain, it's October, which is a two or three week school month because it's got half term. Um, And my daughter had two weeks off school. Many schools have one week off. So it it somehow always manages to be a month. (laughs) There's there's less time in school. Um, But I think following on from what I just said about the approach to understanding Britain and Britain's history and Britain's place in the world, black history is kind of being posited as a response to this neglect, this neglect uh, of really equipping young people with the knowledge they need to navigate our society. And I have a huge amount of respect and admiration for the people who pioneered black history month, because it was at a time when, there was no recognition that black people existed in the curriculum. And so the idea of actually finding uh, examples of black black people who had done remarkable things in history was one that was intended to counter that. And I, I really respect that in its context. I think their hope, which is similar to my hope, was that by now there would be no need for Black History Month because these narratives about Black people would have been so mainstreamed and normalised that you don't need to single out a month in which to share them. And also I think one thing that's happened in Britain is that there's been a real tendency to focus on Black people from other places. So Rosa Parks, um, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, or Nelson Mandela in South Africa, and that there are these kind of Black people over there who had this oppression and then were able to do something about it. But it certainly, until very recently and still today, has not fully equipped people to understand Britain and the role of Black people in Britain. And I think just the very nature and concept and even name of Black History Month is quite problematic because when you really understand this history, it really isn't Black history. It's British history. You cannot understand Britain if you don't understand the empire. You can't understand Napoleon if you don't understand why the Caribbean was of strategic importance in the 18th century. You can't understand the Industrial Revolution if you don't understand St. Kitts and Nevis and Jamaica and the sugar plantations that at one point provided more than half of Britain's GDP. So I think that it also perpetuates this idea that it's this kind of niche subject, this add-on, and that it's optional. And really it's not. It's it's such a mainstream part of British history that I think that that, that idea alone is misleading. But I'm 
unfortunately, the reality is we're still at a point where there is so little understanding about this that just having a month in which people recognize that black people exist and have had agency in history is still something um, that represents progress. So I have really mixed feelings about it. I would rather that we learn about black people in October than that we never do. But I deeply regret that we still reduce to having one month where we talk about it and then where we revert to white history as usual, because that is what it is. As long as we erase these stories and these facts from the rest of our history teaching and not just history but also from the literary canon from maths and science um then we're we're still being complicit in this idea that it's a somehow optional extra we're in the middle of what's what's been described as anti-bullying week in schools mm. and I'm, I'm i'm i have similar misgivings about that in that it, it's mm. great talking <laughs> about it but does that mean that if i'm a bully i can have a week off and then i've got 51 <laughs> weeks left to, left to carry on right, my, right. my trade there and it's that right. that's that sense of uh the 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 well-meaning aspect that starts something off um because it's necessary um so that we can hopefully get to a stage where we don't need to have things compartmentalised um, and how we've got to break out, out from that there. And I think as a, as a trainee teacher at the moment, there's there's definitely a risk that as, as you're training and you're, you're very idealistic about your thoughts about education in its widest sense, that um, you, you can want to try and kind of hook yourself into, into things like, for example, Black History Month and think, right, OK, so I really am going to make that effort to do this at this particular time. Um, because I, I know that it will be a higher profile. Um, it's, it's making sure that you don't just, as you say, you know, just let it let it slip for the for the rest of the time. It's trying to inc- incorporate things there um, into, into your whole year. That's 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 really really important. Um, and it shouldn't be an onerous task for teachers. It's, these should be materials no. that are widely available and exactly. that are um, facilitated. I think centrally, and I think this is really where we're at. That there are many really wonderful teachers going above and beyond to teach this way and to think that way and I absolutely commend and support them but I also feel that it shouldn't be a kind of onerous task for them extra work for them this should be pushing with the tide and not against it and that I think is where we look to leadership to start really changing the approach from the top but in the absence of that I think it is incumbent on teachers and one thing that I do take heart from is that I think social media and the ways in which these movements are digitized means that there are resources available and people are sharing things and it is becoming easier to find it but it shouldn't be hard work it should just be a natural part of um, teaching and researching and planning classes and I, I think you know that in that respect there's still so so far to go yeah, I, I think I think we can we can certainly uh, if we're thinking just you know across all of the podcasts that we've been doing um, for the last, I'm thinking about the one that I did with Sonia Blanford on social mobility a few weeks ago, um, talking about about the fact that you know there's there, there's a lot out there, and it's now a case of trying to make it easier for everybody to get get hold yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, in terms of things for people to get hold of, uh, one thing I do want to, to kind of bring to uh, listeners' attention if they haven't come across um, is a podcast that you did um, called We Need to Talk About British Empire. Um, so I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about about that and how that might be a useful resource for at least some of our trainee teachers. Sure. That's a series that I made for Audible, an Audible original series. And the premise was that we talk about the empire and it often sounds like it's quite remote history. And I wanted to talk to people whose lives, you know, contemporary figures who you'll have heard of, household names, people like Anita Rani, the BBC presenter, and Benjamin Zephaniah, the national poet. And I, I wanted to 
show people how their lives have been so fundamentally shaped by the experience of empire and it was so fascinating for me because I knew for example that Benjamin Benjamin Zephaniah's parents came from the Caribbean I knew that Anita Rani's family um, came from India and Pakistan but it was only in really going in depth into their story that I was able to understand their own personal emotional hinterland and how that's been shaped by these huge historical shifts in the empire and, and and important events. So that was really interesting. And I I wanted to kind of humanize that story of empire, really. So it's not just this thing we speak about in the abstract, but that it's people's lives, people's grandparents, people's secrets and uh, traumas and cultural pride and all of these things really come from those lived experiences of empire. So I, it was a big, a big learning for me. And also I think it really shows you how the empire is not, one thing there one there was no British empire there were many British empires and if you speak to Benjamin Zephaniah about his mother's experience in the Caribbean you speak to Anita Rani about the experience of partition you speak to um Emily the Great who's Emmy the Great who's a, a singer contemporary singer who I spoke to who was born in the empire because she was born in Hong Kong before um it was ceded back to China and you realize well one how, how recent this history is but also how diverse the experiences of empire and how it manifested so differently in different places and how that difference has impacted Britain in so many ways so it was um it was it was a really fun project to do and I've had really lovely feedback from people Mm. who just felt that they learned a lot from it and that it was so accessible because you're listening to a a really interesting famous person tell you their life story but but at the same time you're really learning about the empire yeah, it's and if you if you haven't listened to it, you you really must. It's fantastic. It's absolutely, I absolutely love it. Um, Thank you. So, just just before we finish for this afternoon, um, uh, I know that you know you we're, you're you're doing your your work as a professor of journalism um, over in USC, doing that um, as many teachers are in this country via Zoom. And um, yeah, I know you've been uh, doing the, doing the homeschooling for. Uh, your, your daughter <laughs> and um, we, we were talking about uh, you know the challenges that you know continue to, to this very day um, that uh, you know that we've got we've got these kind of localized lockdowns within year groups and everything going on there. Um, I wonder if you could you could just finish off by um, perhaps thinking about a message that you'd like to give to to our trainee teachers that might um, engage and inspire and 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 get them to think about what what are they going to do to 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 really educate this next generation of children coming through well i think you really hit the nail on the head earlier when you said that one of the issues about this is that people don't know what they don't know and i just think it's so important and incumbent on us to step outside our own experience and really be proactive in internalizing how other people experience this society and how race, gender, class, these things often intersect to really shape people's experience and also dictate their needs from education. And I think that the more you can approach your pupils as people who have this hinterland and this worldview and and these inherited lived experiences, because one thing I've learned through all this work is how what my great-grandparents went through has shaped my experience and so many of my norms and values and perspectives are inherited and many of these inheritances have quite complicated relationships with empire with race in my case Um, and the teachers listening to this will have pupils who have that exact same experience and that you can't reach them if you don't have at least a curiosity in that and how it's playing out in them and that the more proactive you can be in trying to understand 
where they're coming from so that the materials that you use are ones they relate to. And then when I think about my own education, the teachers who did that had such a profound effect on me and were able to really change my life and were able to really reach me because I felt seen. And I think that's something that maybe if, you, if you've never been a visible minority in a society, you don't know what it's like to not feel seen. I mean, it's very real that you can move through the world and you can be successful and accomplished, but you can feel that you're not able to be your authentic self. Or you can feel that if you are your authentic self, it somehow doesn't fit. It's rejected by the kind of mainstream environment around you. And the only way to avoid that is to really see someone for what they are, for the culture and experience. And, and also to realize that, you know, there's so much racism and prejudice but also you know for me my blackness is a source of joy it's something that I love and that I'm proud of and I think that understanding that nuance being sensitive to the barriers and the challenges that people face but also being able to accommodate their joy and their pride is such a powerful thing and you know the, the wonderful thing about about the people listening to this is that you, as teachers you, you are in such a powerful position to have that influence and to reach people in a way that really can change their journey. Afwa, thank you so much. Um, it's been an absolute joy um, to chat with you about su- such such vital things. And uh, so uh, I, I know we've mentioned it um, before, but um, you know, look look out for Afwa on on many things on TV. You can read her, um, particularly in the Guardian at the moment. Um, do read um, British if you haven't done so. We'll leave some links for all of these things in the show notes. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, do have a listen to We Need to Talk About the British Empire on Audible as well. Um, thank you so much, Afra. Thank you so much, Matthew.